Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, once again. We thank you for the brilliant sunshine. We thank you for this place. We thank you for your word, that it reveals to us who you are, that it reveals your truth, and your truth never changes, no matter what the time or the culture or society is or shouts, that you are God. You are the great I am, and you will never change. And because of that, we can always anchor our souls into you. We can always build our foundation on you. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us to, to build our foundation on that solid rock. So that even when the storms come and the wind smashes against the house, we will not fall. We will not be moved because our foundation is built on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that it has nothing to do with us that it only has everything to do with you and, and your sovereignty and your salvation and your uh, restoration and your glorification. We thank you for everything that you are. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The James Webb, James Webb Space Telescope has been over 30 years in the making, stemming from multiple issues that needed to be solved during its, its design and building phase. But finally, on Christmas Day of 2021, the JWST was launched on a rocket from Europe's spaceport in South America. The largest space telescope of its kind at the size of a tennis court and the replacement for the struggling and outdated Hubble telescope, the JWST cost $10 billion to build and launch and took one month to reach its intended destination, an orbit in space some 940,000 miles from the Earth. It is undeniably an amazing scientific feat in order to observe galaxies with infrared technology that were previously too far away to study in any kind of detail. Now, if one looks at the media on NASA's website, the JWST was created and built for one major reason, to study the formation and origin of stars and galaxies in the early universe, this is the language that they use, and to look back very deep into space in order to look very deep back into the history of the universe, so they say. Such goals are saturated in naturalistic and atheistic evolution. Furthermore, this goal seeks to confirm the naturalistic evolutionary theory of the Big Bang as the origin of the universe. The prediction by evolutionary astronomers and physicists was that the only elements that existed at the time of the Big Bang were helium, hydrogen, and a small amount of lithium, all light elements. All other heavier elements originated in the subsequent star formation, and in order to work with this theory, requires copious amounts of time, like billions of years, as with everything else in naturalistic evolution. So, what's all this mean? That, according to this theory, 
at the so-called furthest galaxies of the universe, these heavier elements should not really exist at all. But what has the JWST revealed just in this past year? The existence of these heavier elements. In fact, one physicist is quoted as saying regarding the surprising discovery, the truth that these papers don't report is that the hypothesis that the JWST's images are blatantly and repeatedly contradicting is the Big Bang hypothesis that the universe began 14 billion years ago in an incredibly hot, dense state and has been expanding ever since. Since that hypothesis has been defended for decades as unquestionable truth by the vast majority of cosmological theorists, the new data is causing these theorists to panic, end quote. We who believe that God created the universe and did so in six literal days are certainly not surprised that fully functional galaxies, including all the elements that have existed since that time in creation, are being discovered at the furthest reaches of the universe where they, according to this evolutionary theory, should not exist. And according to creationists and creation scientists by who the above info was published, while these discovers, discoveries will simply cause most of these scientists to just rework their atheistic theories, these discoveries, at face value, simply confirm what those who believe what the Bible says at face value already know and are, are just being confirmed by and are not being surprised by. We're not surprised, but to these evolutionary scientists, these discoveries are mind-blowing. They can't wrap their minds around it. As we pick back up and wrap up this ongoing conversation we've been looking at for the past couple of months between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus who started uh, and those who sort of started out listening to Jesus, we've seen Jesus revealing more and more of who he is and his audience, in response, becoming increasingly more and more oppositional. It will culminate in one final mind-blowing revelation by Jesus of who he really is that his audience simply cannot wrap their minds around. And because of that, the only thing they have to resort to is picking up stones to murder him right then and there. The last time we were in this passage, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the people resorted to name-calling and maligning Jesus. One of those accusations was that he was demon-possessed. Jesus gently refuted their ignorant claim by pointing out that the only things that demons that possessed people said were malicious and destructive. In contrast, the only statements Jesus has made are ones that put the emphasis and glory on the Father. Jesus ended his statement a few weeks ago with verse 51. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone follows my word, he will never see death. We discussed at the time that the whole of God's word explains that no one is good enough to get into heaven on their own. And no one can do enough good things or fulfill enough sacraments or pray enough prayers to earn entrance into heaven. 
That foundation is only based on surrender of your soul by repenting of your sin, accepting that Jesus paid your sin death debt as a substitute on your behalf and then rose again to give you eternal life. We accept Jesus both as Savior and King with the way we live the rest of our lives. Jesus offers this eternal life to anyone and everyone, but we must take it for ourselves. Then we have 100% assurance we have an eternity spent with him to look forward to when we die an earthly death or he comes back for us. That is the one and only basis for salvation from sin and therefore the one and only basis for the gift of eternal life. And a fruit of that salvation is a love for Jesus' word. As John 1 says, Jesus is the embodiment of the entire word of God and a following of that word. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 51 when he says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. A fruit of loving and keeping the word of God displays a faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, not only from our sin, but from the second death, what Jesus is referring to here, or eternal hell. This is the truth. In fact, Jesus uses his famous phrase, truly, truly, before it, to remove any doubt. However, if you go up to any random person on the street, and you tell them, you're not a good person who will just get into heaven. You're a sinner, and you need to repent of your sin and submit to him as king with the way you live the rest of your life. And if you don't do that, you will get what we all deserve, an eternity spent in hell. You better be prepared to duck or run. No one wants to be told that because it flies in the face of human pride. But that does not diminish or deny that it's the God-established truth for our souls. It was the same human reaction from the people listening to Jesus in the temple that day 2,000 years ago. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 52. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 8:52, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. I want all of us to see this. John 8:52. we read, The Jews said to him, this is their response, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Once again, the people understand what Jesus is talking about as something physical. They reason that since even Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, had died, well attested to in God's word, and Jesus was claiming that he was offering the possibility that they not taste physical death, he must either be insane or demon-possessed or both. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, <laughs> isn't that still how those whose spiritual eyes God has not yet opened to see the truth of putting their faith in Jesus, view those of us who have, they cannot get past a person putting their faith for their afterlife and a Jewish teacher who got a little too big for his britches and got executed by the Romans for it. 
But as Jesus will point out in this morning's passage, both this and how the people he was originally speaking to were thinking about it is based only on a finite, human, woefully limited understanding of the wisdom of Almighty God, the creator of the universe and every single complex system that exists within it. To say that what God and his word reveal is nonsense, fables, and childish is the height of human pride and limited human scope of understanding. We just talked about how the most brilliant scientists in the world are baffled by what the latest telescope is revealing about the reality of the universe. And yet people are supposed to believe then that God's word isn't the truth, let alone that he even exists. The people challenging Jesus go on to say this in verse 53. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? As biblical scholars have pointed out, the truth of what the people were actually throwing at Jesus is highly ironic. They say, Abraham and every single other prophet, and I'm assuming they're ignoring Moses and Elijah, have died. You're not somehow greater than they were. Who do you think you are? The irony was this. The people scoff at Jesus and claim he's not a greater person and he's not more powerful than any other prophet who had ever lived. And yet Jesus was not just a prophet. He was God. This ironic and antagonistically challenging statement by the people led to one of the most telling, powerful, and revealing teachings Jesus gives in all of Scripture to his deity. He first starts out what he's already told them, but with one major difference. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus has already told the people that he's not the one attesting to his own deity and messiahship. And even if he was, since he's God, he does have the right to be the testimony about his own deity as the truth. The one who does give attestation to his deity is God the Father, whom the people claim as their God. Furthermore, verse 55, "...and you have not come to know him." But I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. This is the first step in Jesus' ultimate revelation of his deity and his own confirmation of what the Apostle John already wrote in the first few verses of the very first chapter of this book. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, there are two different ways the word know is written in this verse in the original Greek language. The variation of know that Jesus says the people have is a knowledge that one only has through acquiring it or being taught it. This knowledge was not previously known. It was not previously understood until it was taught or discovered. That's the type of knowledge that Jesus says the people have. The Jewish people, whether they be the most uneducated fishermen or the most educated Pharisee, 
only had the knowledge they had through God's word, the prophets or mere rabbis revealing it or teaching it to them. In other words, they and any other human who has ever existed only has the knowledge they have about God because of what he's chosen to reveal or teach through his human servants. Any human who has ever lived owes any amount of knowledge of God, his plan, his way of salvation, and anything else connected to him, to him giving it. We are completely lost on our own without God revealing his wisdom to us. However, the variation of the word for know that Jesus uses in connection to himself is a knowledge that the acquisition of is left to a mystery. If you go back and look at what Jesus has already revealed about his relationship to God the Father, you'll see that Jesus' knowledge of God the Father comes from simply knowing him personally, as in existing right alongside of him throughout all of eternity. I could look someone up on Wikipedia to find out information and knowledge about what's known about them. But only someone who has known that person for decades would truly know them. That's a little bit of an, just, just a tiny bit of an illustration of the contrast between these two understandings of God. We can trust everything Jesus says because he takes it directly from God the Father, whom he's had an eternal and inextricable connection to and relationship with. What I see with Jesus' steps of revelation here is an expansion on John 1.1, when Jesus is referred to as the Word. What Jesus has said so far is an expansion of the first half. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Within the context of that verse, the beginning is not referring to the beginning of the Word or Jesus, but the beginning of the universe. Jesus has always existed with God the Father. Jesus then follows this up with verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. As noted by one biblical scholar, what Jesus means by this is this. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the ancestor that the Jewish people are putting all their trust in here, in that simply because they're Abraham's physical descendants and they're Jewish, they think that they're God's children and they don't need a savior from their sin. But Jesus says that even Abraham, the Jewish people's hero and ultimate ancestor, rejoiced at the promise of a coming deliverer. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, we have no way of knowing how much messianic revelation God gave to Abraham. We only know what is recorded for us in Scripture. We know that God promised to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham, all the families and all the nations that would arise from those families of the earth, or all the Gentiles, is what that means, would be blessed. The ultimate way for that to happen would be when the Messiah and the Deliverer would offer salvation to all the peoples of the earth, as revealed by the prophet Isaiah. 
as Jesus notes, Abraham saw the seed of this messianic fulfillment when the prophesied and promised son Isaac was born and rejoiced over it. And then Abraham saw a motif of the way the Messiah would provide this salvation when just before he would sacrifice his only son, Isaac, God revealed a ram to be used as the substitute sacrifice. Metaphorically, Abraham received his son back alive from the point of death, and God the Father would receive his son back as resurrected from physical death. In all these ways and perhaps more, Jesus says in verse 56 that even Abraham saw and rejoiced at God's revelation of the anticipated Messiah and his deliverance from sin, the fulfillment of which was standing before the people who claimed Abraham and his righteousness as their own. Again, ironically, the people were using Abraham to challenge Jesus as the messianic deliverer, and Jesus turns it right around to say that Abraham is one of the most blatant foreshadowings of Jesus as their messianic deliverer. Once again, the Jewish people are not connecting the dots. They have no clue what Jesus is talking about, and they can only understand him in a finite and woefully limited way. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Once again, they interpret what Jesus says in a purely physical way. They say, you're not even 50 years old and yet you're acting like you were just hanging out at Starbucks with a guy who's been dead for thousands of years. What is wrong with you? Jesus' response is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Most English translations of this verse render this correctly with just the standalone term, I am. In the context of this conversation, Jesus responds to the people's challenge that surely Jesus is not as old as Abraham, who has already been dead for a, a long time. Jesus' response is, Abraham had a beginning and an end. When Abraham was born, I already existed. But Jesus could have just said that, couldn't he have? He could have just said that. Instead, he chose to take that context and his answer to include, once again, a statement of his eternal existence as simply, I am. This is one of only one of several times that Jesus makes this declaration. One time he said it to affirm that he is the anticipated Messiah, the king and deliverer. Another time it was to declare that he is the only source of spiritual sustenance and eternal life. And earlier in this very same conversation, he said it to mean that unless anyone believes that he is, I am, they will simply die in their sins and receive the deserved fate that sin only ever earns. But this reference to Jesus being I am is the clearest and most blatant reference of his to being God himself. 
When Moses is talking with God at the burning bush and asks God who he should tell the Israelites, who he should tell the Israelites sent him to free them from slavery, God simply responds with the term I am to indicate he needs no other description or explanation. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He simply is. And he's simply it. There is no other. I am. Furthermore, the eternal existence of God is the only source that anything that exists has its existence from. When the Apostle Paul was trying to tell pagan Greek philosophers about the one true God, he said about God, in him we live and move and exist. We talked a lot about irony today. When humans deny the existence of God, what they're actually doing is foolishly denying the existence of the one they owe their very existence to. And who wouldn't exist at all if it weren't for his eternal existence. Once again, it's the nonsensical pride of humanity. The Apostle John connects Jesus to the creation of the universe as being the one through whom God the Father in a perfect Trinitarian relationship created everything. He wrote, all things came into being through him, through Jesus. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. This is the exact same declaration Jesus himself is making here in our passage this morning. He is the one is, who is the same as I am, and as such has always existed with the other two members of the Trinity. This is blatantly clear here. Anyone who makes the absurd claim that Jesus himself never claimed that he was God has obviously never read their Bibles, or if they have, have never tried to understand what they're reading. It's as clear as day right here, what we just read. And it's so clear as day that Jesus declared himself as God that the Jewish people who heard it immediately pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. They certainly understood what he was talking about. Verse 59 Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As with the other times Jesus' own people tried killing him, it wasn't God's timing yet, nor was it the way by which he had prophesied the Messiah would die hundreds of years before this. So most likely through another supernatural occurrence, Jesus was hidden from their ability to see him and made his way out of the temple. This is the declaration of the second half of John 1.1. We already talked about Jesus' declaration of the first half of that verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And now with Jesus himself's declaration of himself as I am, we have his declaration of the second half. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Contrary to the way a lot of people walking around the world think about Jesus, 
He wasn't merely a man. He wasn't merely a good teacher. He wasn't merely a prophet. He didn't just have some higher knowledge like so-called progressive Christians today like to think they have. The deity who has always existed in the Trinity was not always called Jesus. He was named that when he took on human flesh at the moment of his supernatural conception within a human woman's womb, for it denoted his purpose that he would save his people from their sins. But this being cannot simply be, the, be only thought about or worshipped as the man who lived for a little over 30 years on the earth. The second person of the eternal Trinitarian God, known as the Son of God because of his submission to God the Father's will, has always existed. And as such, both transcends the universe, God's created concept of time, world history, and humanity itself. At the same time, in complete obedience to God the Father, he came to earth by adding humanity without its sinfulness to his deity. He broke into human time and the human world and our human way of understanding in order to be the very revelation of the wisdom of God. The one through whom your existence and the human soul originated is the same exact one who willingly came to earth, was born as a helpless baby, suffered, went homeless for periods of time, went hungry, went thirsty, went exhausted, all to be mocked, taunted, ridiculed, beaten beyond recognition, pierced by a crown of thorns, ripped apart with shards of glass, forced to drag his own cross, and nailed through the wrists to it all to labor for every breath and excruciating pain, taking your sins upon his sinless and holy self and breathing his last when it was finally time. All to open up the way for you to be able to be restored to God and have the hope of heaven offered to you. And this same one rose again from the dead, is interceding for you before the throne of God the Father on a second-by-second basis. And when God the Father says it's time, is coming back for you. Is coming back to take you home. This same one will come back after that in victory, destroying the armies of the whole world and setting up his messianic millennial kingdom on earth. And this same one will exist and make his home along with the other members of the Trinity with us in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. So the one who both transcends this physical world, the concept of time and finite human understanding, is perfectly capable of breaking into your world to save you, to provide for you, to give you the peace and comfort you need in whatever situation you're in, and to even and especially work miracles. In connection with our opening discussion, this is mind-blowing. This is such a mind-blowing truth that it should cause us to leave our fear at his feet, to be driven to worship him in prayer on a daily basis and trust him with every detail, every circumstance, and every outcome. 
to every situation. After all, our God is a good Father, as Romans 8 tells us, and works everything out for the good for those who he calls according to his purpose and plan to trust him with their lives and souls. Maybe you needed to have your heart and mind realigned with who Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal one who has always existed and will always exist, really is. Maybe you never thought about him that way. Let us all worship him for all of who he is, not just on Sundays, but on an everyday basis and how we live out our everyday lives. As we wrap up John chapter 8, along with all the truth that Jesus has revealed about himself, who he truly is, his relationship with God the Father, and what that means for us, let us find our spiritual rest in God's sovereignty. Let us find our spiritual rest in submitting to Jesus' authority and his embodiment of the whole word of God and living for him out of love for all that he is and has done for us. Let us find our spiritual rest in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit given to us by both God the Father and the Son who reminds us in only a way that he can that we are God's children and transforms us each day more and more into the likeness of this eternal Son of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what these very simple statements that you make as recorded for us in the Gospel of John, all that they mean to us, all that the power, all of the power that, that is in these words. Lord, I pray that it would cause us to have a heart change, a, a mind change, that we would, as Paul implores the church in Romans 12, that we would not be conformed to this world any longer, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we would know what the good and perfect will of you is. I pray that this truth would drive us to worship you every day with the way that we live our lives. And that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we would find our spiritual rest in knowing you are God, you are sovereign, you are good, and let that be enough for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.